Welcome, friends. This is Untrained Effort, and my name is Wara Vedsuava Grestova. Untrained Effort is a new podcast about performance, politics, and the people they have in common. I come to you just after a month of podcasting from my kitchen in Popla, in London. And unfortunately, I do not bear good news. The very first Untrained Effort podcast was titled Where is the UK Arts Bailout? Unfortunately, I am still asking the same question. Do you help me answer it? I had the privilege to interview Michelle Barnett, producer known for the Fringe Hit Sparks, as well as her work at the King's Head Theatre in London, one of the most famous pub theatres here in the city, well regarded amongst the LGBTQ plus community. Michelle and I share passion for the politics of culture. So we were probably some of the few people up at 9am on the 9th of June 2020 to follow the oral evidence meeting of the DCMS Cross-Party Committee, chaired by Julian Knight MP. This committee examines policy, spending and administrations on behalf of the electorate and the House of Commons. So they scrutinise what the Ministry of Culture essentially is doing, especially now during COVID-19. Key arts figures and ministers were quizzed on the impact of the pandemic on culture and the arts, and there were two sets of witnesses. On one side were those that I call our guys, the arts and culture guys, That was Julian Bird, Chief Executive at UK Theatre and Society of London Theatre, two membership organisations. Caroline Norbury, MBE, Chief Executive at Creative Industry Federation. And Horace Trubridge, General Secretary at Musicians Union. On the other side were Caroline Dynage, Minister for Digital and Culture. David Knott, Director for the Office of Civil Society and Emma Squire, the Director of the COVID-19 Economic Response and Arts, Heritage and Tourism in the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, or DCMS. Michelle expertly followed the conversation and I really encourage you to check her Twitter at Mish underscore Barnett for the recap of that conversation. Here are the highlights. I think the main takeaways were... um, 70% of the theatre sector is expected to close before Christmas without any intervention. 50% of music videos, uh, videos, music venues around the country um, also expected to face permanent closure. Um, There were some really quite alarming figures about how much of the workforce isn't able to get um, any kind of self-employed pay or furlough. I think the musicians union said it was, I think, 38% of their members, um, which is quite high, whereas uh, the government is obviously saying it's 5% aren't eligible. And there was a lot of pushing around that number. 
they kept avoiding the answer to the answering the question going, oh, well, you know, well, we looked at the musicians union survey and they're like, no, 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 we're talking about the DCMS survey. And they're like, oh, yeah, no. And, um, and they were denying that there was anything saying that, you know, it's 5%, 5% aren't eligible. And, and they were like, well, then I guess the entire 5% must happen to fall within our sector. Like it must all be us. Um, which obviously is a ludicrous thing to think because, you know, there's so many other sectors that I've had, you know, that have been hit. Um, there was something that they said after prodding early indications that our industry would be hit twice as hard as any other industry in the country as a result of COVID. Um, and they're expecting us to lose half of our workforce and we're expecting to lose a third of our revenue. Anyone who's been following this in the last couple of months before, you know, it gets quite a lot. So I totally understand if people haven't been following it. But I think most of us who have been were aware of the 70% figure because it's been plastered in every newspaper in the last month, like the Evening Standard and the Guardian and the stage and what's on stage and uh, the BBC have done a feature. Like there's been a lot of amazing coverage. And, you know, we've had Sam Mendes speaking about it and, Sonia Friedman speaking about it, all these like big, big powerhouses, like putting their voice into the cause. Um, but I think putting it into perspective with the larger sector was like, oh, that is, that is actually really, really quite painful to think about um, the larger implications. And it does seem that, you know, from, from the committee, it did seem that theatre and music were hit harder than perhaps some of the other branches of the entertainment sector. I then go on to ask Michelle if she had the opportunity to ask the question, would she ask the same questions? Was anything missing? I mean, I've thought about this a lot, and I think the questions that were being asked were really important. Um, so they kept asking, like, do the Treasury get the arts? Do they understand? And they weren't getting a good response on that at all. And they're like, oh, no, of course. And it's like, no, 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 but, but do you? And actually, I, I don't think they do because there seemed to be like a lot of, like Oliver Dowden um, and Caroline, I can't remember her surname, who was on, uh, who's the minister, one of the ministers for DCMS. Um, and they, they've both now gone public and gone like, oh, well, we watched with the rest of the country. We watched One Man, Two Governors. My, I remember sitting there crying at a show. And it's like, hold on, I'm glad you understand the emotional significance, but, but that doesn't address our community work. That doesn't, like, that doesn't think about what theatre means in local hubs. Like, yeah, I mean, One Man, Two Governors is great. All the live theatre is fantastic. All the stream theatre is fantastic, but... Um, but that doesn't show you have an understanding of the sector. Um, and I think there's a big thing that kept coming up in the, in the whole three hours, which is like they wanted, they have a three-step plan, um, which I say sarcastically because step one is rescue. And that really, really doesn't sit right with me. Um, and it, it really was like, well, to rescue something, it, it kind of makes me feel like, oh, well, the arts are like, you know, we're a damsel in distress and like, we have to come in like, and, and, you know, take you off on the white horse. And it's like, wait, but you don't have to let us die before you rescue us. And like, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked and a lot of accountability to be had of like, well, why are you waiting so long? And people did kind of hint at that and they were going, well, other people needed help first. And it's like, 
But then they, in the next breath, they were like, well, we've known about the problems the sector has been facing from day one. And it's like, okay, you knew that our freelancers weren't supported. You knew that our venues were collapsing and, and you decided to stay quiet despite that. I, I don't think that is fair to, to the people who work in our industry, to the hard work and the years of audience development and artist development that have gone into making these places cultural hubs and like safe spaces for their communities. Um, so I, I don't know. I think I would do a lot more grilling around why has your response been so inadequate? Mm-hmm. Um, because I really genuinely, frankly, think it has been. And I, I doesn't look like it's going to get much better because they're talking about it as investment and not not grants, not subsidy, not anything else. They are, you know, they seem to be indicating that they are going to go with the approach of acting as a producer. What Michelle has been picking up on really well here is the result of a decade of austerity politics, which have meant a steady decrease in government funding for the arts. She's also picking up on something fundamental in centre-right and neoliberal politics, the idea of entrepreneurship, whereby all aspects of society have to emancipate themselves from the state and operate independently in the market economy. As I explained in episode two of Untrained Effort, the Tories rely on the idea that any sponsorship from the state is a um, betrayal of liberalism and an autocratic approach that should be shameful for the recipient of the subsidy. This, of course, can be clearly seen around the benefit system and the perceptions of people who need that help. However, this stigma is one that hardly sticks to the relatively developed subsidised arts sector in the UK because compared to so many other countries, the arts here do benefit from government support. But also, as Michelle noted somewhere else in our interview, the Arts Council money that is distributed to organisations come from the taxpayer and um, very specifically also from the lottery. So it's very different from an arts bailout. And this is why it's so interesting to pick up on her last point, the point of the government maybe perhaps coming in as a producer. I believe that this government struggles to understand how theatre doesn't fit in market economy terms or, or perhaps that they refuse to acknowledge it. I think the jury is out of as of why, but the evidence hints at the type of people they have chosen as representatives is, and as um, people from the industry to help them navigate the complexity of the art sector in the UK. Michelle mentioned some of them, uh, Andrew Lord Webber and Cameron McIntosh are always names that come back as well as um, the representatives on that committee, such as SALT and UK Theatre, two very powerful membership organisations, mostly representing uh, commercial ventures and venues. So, as I said, we continue talking with Michelle, and I really want to dig into the idea of the government as producer, and especially on her tone about it. As a producer, she didn't seem to be so positive about that relationship so I ask her why like I understand why the economic argument has been front and center and I think that was the right call um 
but the reason I'm more interested in them doing things like theatre tax relief and increasing that than having the government as a producer is because I'm really concerned about what that means for stories we're allowed to tell in the long term and um, what the deal will look like. Because in theory, in a producing contract, so if you're, um, you know, producing contracts very wild, like completely wildly, like it depends entirely who's involved and who's putting in the money and where the money's coming from and what percentages, it's, it's a, a minefield. Um, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. There are obviously, well, there are wrong ways to do it. But, um, but like the way it works is people invest in theatre and they go, okay, well, I accept, I take on the risk of not getting that money back and I can afford to lose that money and fine. But the trouble is, so, I mean, I, I don't know what there is to be done about like half of them are charities. Charities, like, it, is it a debt that the charities take on? Are they paying back a loan? Is that what it's going to look like? Um, do we have to start, I mean, this is going to sound, maybe this is stupid, but like, do we have to start branding all of our posters, like sponsored by the government? Like, it's okay to do that with the Arts Council because that is public money, that is public subsidy, that is that is what our tax dollar goes into, right? Um, and if you have an Arts Council project, you do put that on the poster. And, you know, that's really something to be proud of. Um, but what does it look like if it is a much larger thing and not via the Arts Council that it is the UK government? Um, and then there's a the whole issue of like, well, oh, well, if you turn a profit, they turn a profit. Was well, it based on your your yearly like, is it based on your, over a year? Is it per production? What happens? Are you getting preferential deals? And, and I think there's something to be said about, like, I'm actually really, oh God, I'm going to completely botch this thought because I'm trying to articulate it. But what happens in, like, so we still need to make our, our, our show sustainable, right? So we still have to, like, think about, okay, well, how much can we pay to this? How much can we afford on a set? How many audience members do we need for that? what does it like are they giving us money up front because if they're giving it up front we still have to calculate the money that they're getting back as investors down the line or do we have to put in less money because we're not getting more payments later like or is it that we're getting like a thousand a month I mean a thousand is obscenely low for what it needs to be but let's say it's a thousand a month are we getting a thousand a month for the next whatever and have to return that like I just I just <laughs> they're gonna need some really good lawyers on on what that deal would look like because what are the terms? Like, do they get oversight? Like investors don't always get a say, but in some places I have heard stories of investors getting a say in what goes on and what happens. Mm -hmm. And like, who gets to tell stories and who gets to perform? And, you know, does it become something like it has to be a, a, an artist of a certain caliber or, you know, you know, we have to make sure, you know, big names are going on our stages so that audiences come. It's like, I guess we're already aware that the government doesn't stand, understand the arts. So I don't know what they would then impose on the arts without, like, that we would have to say yes to. This idea of the government as a producer fascinates me. I don't think that I have heard um, any other government acting like this towards arts and culture and theatre in particular. A government that seeks ac actively a return on investment for the money that it puts in the culture of its people. We discussed with Michelle about um, a new scheme proposed by the Old Vic Theatre. They say in conversation with the industry, however, this is still a little bit of a contentious matter. A, a scheme proposed by the Old Vic called SIPS or 
Cultural Investment Participation Scheme. The SIPS is an investment scheme where the government gives funds to charities and commercial organisations in return for in-kind social benefit and financial returns. So it's a mix of intangible social benefits and tangible financial gains. There's been a lot of conversation around this scheme and how it will work and if organisations that have made their raison d'être that kind of social benefit aspect of arts and, and culture, how are they going to fit in the equation when commercial venues perhaps use their unique selling point in order to leverage funds? At the same time, how would one value across the board and across the territories and with all the complexity and diversity of this country, the depth and breadth of social value of one specific piece of theatre? Or is it about the programming? The entire venue? There are still a lot of questions about that. And here is Michelle talking about the impact of theatre more widely. I think, you know, and I, I get it because there was this whole thing and they were going, oh, well, we're not begging for pennies from the treasury. It's like, what? Like, you're, you're, we're not asking you to beg for pennies. We're, we're asking you to literally just save our, our cultural heritage and save our jobs and save our, our venues and our colleagues. I think you're right. I think, you know, they even brought up yesterday the question of how do you measure the, the cultural and um, cultural value of an institution? And it's like, well, you know, it's so maybe, maybe it's obvious to us as theater makers, but like each venue has their community, right? So, um, you know, the King's Head is, you know, just we, when we produce, we produce like three major strands of work and like we have been an LGBT venue for 50 years. Like we were one of the first people putting those stories on stage back in the seventies. And, you know, um, and you go, okay, well, so much of the bedrock of the King's head <laughs> comes from that. And, you know, each venue has that equivalent. Um, if, if they've been around for a while and, and it changes with artistic directors, but when you look at that and you go, well, what, what's the value of that? How can you put a number? How can you put a figure on how many people's lives have been impacted or helped or, you know, how many people have found solace and community and a home? And I don't think you can put a number on that, to be honest. Obviously, she has me there when she says home. As an immigrant and a theatre maker, Theatre has been that, has been and always has been a place of identity and a place of belonging because together with other people you build a sense of ensemble, a, a common space where you share stories, something so human, intrinsically human of being able to talk to other people about who you are or how you perceive the world. So... Obviously, we continue a conversation and ramble and ramble on. Um, but towards the end, I ask Michelle my now traditional question. What would you do if theatre ceased to exist? Oh, God. <laughs> That's depressing. Um, you know, I guess I guess we all have had to think about that recently. Um 
because I was, um, God, I was having a conversation with a friend who doesn't work in theater. Um, a couple of friends who don't work in theater, actually one of whom is a banker and one of whom, um, is a journalist. And <laughs> the, the, banker was going you know really practical like well here's all the things you can do and here's what you should do and you can go back and you can get your law conversion degree and it's very I was like look I have thought, I have thought on occasion about doing that anyway because so much of my job is contract based and I think um you know I have a pretty good understanding of um entertainment and the things we need to know about that anyway but yeah I don't know I thought about this a lot and I am um, I think in like a practical, I hate that my brain has gone to job, but obviously I'm very concerned at the moment about how we'll all continue to live. Um, so you can tell where my head is. Um, I write, so I'd probably do something in, that allows me to, to write if I could find another job <laughs> that did that. Um, but in terms of like, I, I mean, on a more like day by day level, I think if theatre was just to disappear, I think there'd be a first and foremost, a period of complete and utter mourning because theatre has been so central to my development and my life from when I was a kid. And I, you know, was very, very lucky that my parents loved the arts and any opportunity to take me to some kind of play or my mom did a lot of like amateur theatre and I'd go and sit in her rehearsals and you know, that's when I fell in love with theater and, and, you know, went to school for a few years that didn't have any theater at all. And then I was lucky enough to go to school that did and not having it made me feel the absence. So like, I remember it so vividly and just missing it beyond any kind of, like, I was so young that I missed it. And I, I, I didn't have any other foundation or like way to like, uh, measure the size of that emotion because it was the first time I really felt it. And I don't know. I don't know. I thought, I've, I've thought so much about what I would do if I weren't in theater. And I just can't imagine a world without it mm. because everything is, you know, and when I was studying, I did a class um, by a brilliant, brilliant professor. I, I'm pretty sure he's a professor and um, who's Alan Reed. And um, sorry if I've just accidentally given him a promotion. Um, but he, he's fantastic. And we did a class on like, uh, theater and performance and performance or London and performance, performance in London or performance in theater. I can't remember it, but it was in a, in a theater module. And it was effectively talking about how like, like marriage is a ritual. That is a performance. Like, you know, there's a lot of gender theory that's talking about gender as a performance. Literally everything we do is theatrical. Like you can't see me because I, you know, our, our video isn't on, but like the way I am animating my hands right now, like the way I am sitting on my chair, like all these kinds of things and the way you try to persuade people to listen to you, it's all theater. Um, and I just, I, I don't know. I think I would, I would have a very stern word with myself about how we could make theater again, probably. <laughs> um, or if we woke up in a world where theater never existed, I think, I think we'd be the lesser for it. Mm. And I actually wonder what our world would look like. Um, because theater and storytelling is the very heart of what we do as people. It always has been like, you see it in the cavemen drawings, you hear the stories about, you know, ancient Greece, you, we have their plays. Like it, it's so embedded in our need to connect 
as people that I really don't know what the world would look like without it. To finish off, I asked Michelle if she has a message for our listeners. You know what? I feel like I've been ever so slightly pessimistic. Um, and I think actually what I'd like to say to people listening is I know it does look bleak and I know it looks bleak because it's, it's there in front of us and I feel it too, but we love what we do. And I know then there's that whole argument of like, oh, well, that's what got us lower wages in the first place. If you take the musicians, you know what they said yesterday, but you know, there is money in this industry. There, we are an entrepreneurial industry because we've had to be, and we're a resilient industry because we've had to be. And I think the people who are drawn to theater are people who are passionate and open-minded and genuinely really care. And I think that is a thing that is shining above and beyond from like pouring out of everything that I am seeing is just everyone trying to connect and trying to show that we will survive this and it might look different and it might mean that we have to make sacrifices, which I know sometimes can be hard to imagine. We've, when we've already said we've lost 30% of our funding, but, but we, we will find a way to make this right again. And, you know, we'll hopefully avoid all of the slew of like, Oh, COVID plays. Like we'll hopefully avoid all that. And, and in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years time, the people now who are genuinely trying to make an impact, like the young people coming through the emerging talent, like they will be running these organizations and they will be the ones who are like the next set of voices who can really instigate change in our sector because people are doing such a great job now. And just imagine what will that will be like once we've gotten through this really rough patch. And, and I think actually there's a lot of amazing people in our industry and I'm very proud to know them and work with them. And if there's anything I believe in, it is we will find our way out and through this. Isn't she amazing? Because she's amazing, I also ask her, does she have people right now that she's following that she would like to recommend, people that we should look out for, people that we should amplify and really keep an eye on? Oh, there, there's so many really amazing people. Um, but there's two people I think are doing like really great work, um, especially right now. And that's Germa, who's the joint AD of Sculptress Theatre, which um, gives a platform for black voices. And I've seen two of their shows and both of them were great. Um, the last one, I think, was like a week before we all locked down. So they got really lucky with the timing. And um, and the other one is is actually one of my my best friends. It's um, Aaron Blair Mangat, who is a phenomenal actor and singer and writer. And um, he's started an initiative called The Musical Alphabet. And he's getting all like the West End stars to, to do these like amazing um, clips. And he's putting them on his YouTube and Instagram and, um, and kind of like bringing that little bit of joy into people's homes. And it, it's, it's so great. So check them both out. They're doing amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to put um, social media, any handles, any um, website addresses down below in the comments of the podcast. And this was Untrained Effort with Michelle Barnett. Thank you so much. Thank you.
make sure to also give Michelle a follow at M-I-C-H underscore Barnett. That's B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E. Mish underscore Barnett. And of course, hashtag Untrained Effort to let us know that you've heard about her DCMS and all the amazing stuff on this podcast. Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back soon with more performance, politics and people that they have in common. Until then, stay safe.